This is episode 23 with Andrew Chang, COO at Paxos. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Andrew Chang is the COO at Paxos, a fintech company that builds infrastructure on blockchain to facilitate the movement between physical and digital assets such as cryptocurrency. Before joining Paxos, Andrew had an array of experience, including working in business development at Google, serving as a COO of video technology condition one, and starting his career at Morgan Stanley. Andrew earned his MBA from New York University's Leonard School of Business, where he was president of the student body, and he also earned a Bachelor in Science from Boston College. In this episode, I chat with Andrew about how to figure out what to do with your career, the importance of distinguishing between security and prosperity, and why being a COO is like being a decathlete. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hey, Andrew, thanks for joining the podcast today. Yeah, good to be here. Um, really excited for the conversation. There are so many different topics that um, I want to touch on. Um, but I think, you know, what are, what are the things that has been uh, capturing my attention the last few weeks and years, I'm not a FOMOer, is uh, the price of Bitcoin. So <laughs> question number one is, how much do you pay attention to the price of Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I pay attention as much as it affects Paxos, uh, the company yeah. where I'm the chief operating officer. I think there's a lot of interesting effects of the crypto prices, Bitcoin in particular, and how interested people get in blockchain technologies, even though those are very loosely related, you'd be surprised how um, crypto hype that is driven by price uh, spikes ends up driving interest in the technology. And you can see how that might be the case. You know, People are talking about Bitcoin, it's on CNBC a lot uh, because the price is so high. Um, yeah. And then uh, that echoes in the corporate boardrooms or in the uh, decision-making of larger companies to finally go forward with that blockchain uh, project that they've been talking about. Um, and then that leads to, you know, a lot of what we're doing at Paxos, which is building this financial infrastructure. Um, and so that that that's mainly why uh, I might pay attention, but I've been around it enough to know that um, there's a lot of ups and downs. So you can never, every, every up is followed by down and, um, you know, uh it's it's just the way that uh this crazy um uh story has developed so uh i try not to get too excited when things are high <laughs> yeah. or too disappointed when things are low so yeah and that's a sign of wisdom and a long-term hopeler um yeah <laughs> but, no, it's good to, good to hear that i mean i i got in uh 2017 like the yeah. first peak and it was a bad time but thankfully thankfully i held on to uh, my coins, um, but you're you're totally right. Like I've been paying attention to it in the markets too, and you see companies that you know should be loosely correlated to Bitcoin, like Square, who yeah. obviously you know they they bought a bunch of Bitcoin on their uh, put it on their balance sheet. But you, I can start to see that correlation of like when Bitcoin went down yesterday. Uh, obviously, the market was like okay yesterday, but I just felt like um, some of these companies who are not pure, you know. Bitcoin asset managers are unfairly being uh, punished when the price of Bitcoin goes down. So yeah. it's interesting to see that correlation. Especially because it's crazy if you reverse back three months 
um, the price it's at right now, which I think it was, you know, 31,000 or so it's still, you know, up, uh, you know, a hundred percent from like three months ago or whatever yeah. it is. So it's a little crazy. Your perspective could get skewed at what, what is high, uh, exactly. what is good and what is bad. So, you know, I try to stay a little bit even, but yeah, I'm with you. Like you can't, uh, I've learned a lot of like, I've gained a lot of mental maturity, um, uh, overcoming like missed opportunities or, you know, you know, uh, you know, I've sold Bitcoin at $200, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, I've, I've, I've been able to, you know, uh, mature a lot, uh, being on this ride for sure. Totally. Totally. And obviously there's a big, big, uh, swath of retail investors, whether it's in Bitcoin or just like common, common shares and equities. And, uh, the key thing, um, in all this, I feel like is that mental discipline, right? Like yeah. come into these with your own point of view, like do whatever due diligence you need. But, um, I found like when I FOMO into uh, certain stocks or, or assets, like that's when I get burned because once things dip 10%, 20%, that's where I'm yeah. like, Oh my God, well, I thought this is easy <laughs> money. And obviously there's no such thing as uh, reward without some risk. So yeah, good for advice. sure. Um, so yeah, definitely want to kind of get more into Paxos and a lot of exciting news that has come out of the, the company um, recently. But before we do that, could we spend, um, you know, first few minutes talking about your background? So, Tell folks uh, about your childhood, where you're you're born, and and what your childhood looked like. Yeah, sure. I you know grew up a lot, um, very similar to probably a lot of uh, uh, sons and daughters of immigrants. So I grew up in Southern California. Uh, my both my parents are from Korea, immigrated to the U.S. Um, to Los Angeles in the '60s and '70s. Um, you know, just like now, millions of of um, you know. Uh, Asian Americans who were born in the States, but their parents immigrated. It's a very similar story. Um, and, you know, my parents uh, grew up poor. Like, again, a lot of immigrants who came over, that's why they immigrated. They were poor. I grew up in poor families and were looking for opportunities. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, the way I think about things or the, a lot of um, uh, the way that I operate now really was influenced by uh, their story, you know, them coming over, they had to figure it all out on their own. You know, my parents were both, um, you know, some of the first of their families to come over. So they didn't have a huge network of, uh, family already in the States. And so just often reflecting on thinking about my parents coming over, barely speaking the language, having to figure all this stuff out is just mind blowing. You know, so they got good in my mind, at figuring this stuff out, um, trying to figure out how to do this, how to send your kid to after school program, how to, you know, what you need to do, what what other people were doing that have have lived in in the states, or you know, maybe their families have been here for multiple generations. Um, so that that really, I would say, you know, really influenced a lot of um, kind of how I grew up and just observing that. Uh, uh, was was um, you know really kind of inspiring to me, but also just reminds me that I've got all the tools that they didn't have, so I should be really able to figure this stuff out. You know, I'm equipped with all the things that they sacrificed to come here and put me in a position. Uh, so I'm always grateful, and I always kind of recognize that that that's that's why I could be in the position 
to be successful is, um, you know, they, they really made those sacrifices to do that. Totally. Totally. Yeah. My, my parents came uh, to Canada from Singapore in the late seventies and it's, it gives a, I feel like uh, being children of immigrants, you get that perspective and um, appreciation. We're really standing on the shoulder of giants, right? Especially those who come to a new country, not really having friends, not having a lot of money, not even speaking the language sometimes. And when you look at where we're at, or maybe, you know, future generations or children's grandchildren, it's really building off uh, all the risk and um, faith that uh, our previous uh, generations had. So, Yeah, for sure. You know, I always view that group of immigrants that came up or any immigrant, whether it be uh, 200 years ago or yeah. uh, today, um, they were all risk takers. And so, mm. you know, I think um, uh, everybody uh, had to make this huge leap of faith and uh, the craziest, riskiest decision to just pick it all up and go somewhere where you had nothing. That just like, I, I think that's what really drives kind of uh, the spirit of um, the US and places like Canada where there's a lot of immigrants and people, everybody who's come here at some point in a recent history, recent history being just the last couple hundred years, had to have family members that just had the courage to do that. And so I think that's something to continue to keep in mind. Like anything that I do now is just a fraction of the risk that mm. our parents took to go do what they had. There's no backstop. There was no, um, you know, there was no network. There was no like, oh, I could always go live at home with my parents if this doesn't work out. So, yeah. uh, you know, that, you know, we talk, uh, we think a lot about risk. And um, when we talk about tech and entrepreneurship, it just really um, puts it into perspective of what like true risk is. So uh, I try to keep that in mind when I think about, what a privileged position uh, my parents have put me in. Mm -hmm. And how did that kind of concept of risk shape um, what you decided to do, whether it's in school or even um, after after your formal education? Yeah, it's interesting because my my you know when I think about my parents' focus, you know they were focused on security versus prosperity. You know, because they were focused, that's what their generation is focused on. We just need to survive. And so, you know, my dad always said, uh, you know, he was always pushing, like, you got to get a license. You got to get a license. And he's like always pushing uh, uh, my sibling, me and my siblings to like be a pharmacist or a CPA. That was like mm. the thing. You got a license. Yes. You have a license, you Safe. can operate. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> My um my wife, who's uh, similar story, but she's Taiwanese and her parents are uh, immigrated in a similar fashion. You know, her dad was always emphasizing, you got to get a pension. You know, you got to get He <laughs> doesn't realize that doesn't really exist anymore. But, um, you know, it was security versus prosperity. Mm -hmm. uh, but but my my dad was also an entrepreneur, like he ran his own uh, business um, as, um, you know, maintaining buildings and subcontracting the maintenance of buildings. And so, because he had to, he didn't have any choice. He wasn't going to go get a job at IBM. He didn't have the tools or the language skills. So he had to be an entrepreneur, just like a lot of these, um, a lot of immigrants had to be. Uh, so in some ways he's, he, you know, my parents emphasize this like security concept because that's what they wanted for their kids. But yet they were the extreme risk takers. And, mm. uh, 
you know, as I've gotten older, I've heard more stories. I didn't really understand this, but, you know, uh, you know, I guess my dad did a lot of crazy stuff. Like he was trying to get a fish market going once and then he was trying to do this and did that. And he like tried and failed at a lot of things out of pure survival. And I think, um, you know, so I, you couldn't, I couldn't help but be influenced by that. Yet my dad's pushing uh, and mom's pushing like security. And so, you know, I think um, uh, what influences me the most out of that is really thinking about, yeah, it's like, how do I build upon, they've built that security for me. They've provided an ability to go to school. And, I, you know, I've, uh, I speak the language that I, in the country I'm in, they've provided that security layer mm -hmm. um, from a uh, support perspective, like to get me through to send me on to college and beyond and then equip me with tools and skills to do that. And then for me, it's gonna be about uh, prosperity. So then how do I leverage that and then do something more, regardless of what my parents are saying about you know uh, security, because I feel like they've done the hard work to lay that foundational layer. So then I'm sure like when I, I have two kids, I'm sure I'm gonna be saying the same thing. Maybe I'm saying, I'm talking to them about prosperity and they're talking about something even higher level. Like I'm sort of intellectual enlightenment. enlightenment. Yeah. Enlightenment. Right. <laughs> and then they'll be, um, I'm sure they will be poor artist or something or philosopher. And then their kids will be about security because they grew up poor and then the cycle will continue. Yeah. That is, that's such a fascinating observation. I never thought about that, but I mean, even when you're talking about that, I, I think about, you know, some of the more like famous entrepreneurs, like a Zuckerberg, Bill yeah. Gates, like they came from means and yeah. maybe it is that security and safety um, that encouraged them to take more risk. And, you know, because they had a, maybe a bigger safety net to fall back on, yeah. they felt uh, a bit more empowered to do that. So such a fascinating yeah. idea that you shared. And I think that's like important to um, recognize that um, just keep in mind about, you know, obviously everyone grew up in different circumstances, but at least I try to keep in mind uh, the uh, appreciation for my parents laying those foundational bricks. Mm -hmm. And the safety net isn't so much like, oh, I can go live at home if something doesn't work out. That doesn't, it's not really that. It's the concept is more that they put down these foundational blocks that are so set in the, on, uh, on the ground. They've put that down and they've allowed me to stand on that foundation, um, which allows me to think about things like um, going beyond just making sure I have uh, food in the kitchen. Uh, I can think about what it means to like, try to reach a little bit higher. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that I think about that a lot because that cycle of generations, um, I think will probably happen. And for my kids, I want to think, well, how can I lay down that security layer, but allow them to find their own path, whatever it may be, whether enlightenment or intellectual curiosity, whatever they can provide. And that's like, that's the next level of like saying, okay, well, uh, you know, how can I set them up for success? Uh, and then how does that cycle perpetuate itself three, four or five generations down mm. the line? And I mean, on that topic, you know, as a father of two young kids as well, I wanted to get your, your take on how do you view kind of the role of stress, right? In one's personal and maybe even professional development and stress can be from multiple forms, right? It could be, um, 
something you're proactively signing up for, like uh, setting a high bar for yourself, or it could be um, something that's out of our control. But as a parent, like, how do you think about um, helping your children grow and like uh, develop a strong character, um, large, which sometimes come through these like stressful environments or situations, but also making sure to some degree your kids have a quote unquote better life than what yeah. you had. And that's a struggle like I kind of balance um, I'm kind of going through right now, which is I want my kids to grow up and like develop character. And I know that often comes through stressful situations. But on the other hand, I want to make sure my kids are happy and, um, you know, also enjoying and and uh, being present in, in their life. Yeah, I think that's a tough, very tough balance. And the way I've thought about that is I want my kids, I have the same challenge thinking, I don't want to over coddle my kids, but I also truly believe that the playbook that our parents use, um, and if you think about typical Asian immigrant parents, you can talk about tiger moms and dads, um, that playbook isn't going to work uh, in this generation. And I think too many people are trying to use that playbook that was successful in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. uh, and trying to apply it to the the copy and paste it to this generation, which I just think the, the world is different. Um, the challenges are different and the situation is different. You know, where I was born here, my kids were born here um, and people are maybe trying to take a little bit too much of a copy and paste approach, which, you know, again, is just like um, you have to evolve the techniques of anything, just like uh, going from waterfall software development to agile, you know, you just have to keep on flexing with the best practices. When I think about stress, especially with my kids, um, something I read once that I have held on to is, is I want to put them through enough stress without creating permanent damage. And so Creating stressful situations, I think, are important for them to develop and learn. But if it's going to create permanent damage, uh, I'm very sensitive to that and don't want to create that permanent damage. And I think everybody in their childhood remembers some certain pivotal moments. And at times, I remember a slight thing someone said once, one time, and it's affected me greatly. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, a colleague of mine who grew up in Queens, um, she was Taiwanese American as well, recalled a time where she was, um, she used to be super outgoing and loud and uh, playful. And one time, one parent, uh, when she was, you know, seven years old said, you really should uh, be quieter. And that fundamentally shifted her, her outlook. Mm. And she was much more reserved at, in personality after that. And it's, I'm very sensitive that there, there are some small moments like that you could you could inject in your kid to create certain levels of permanent damage, uh, or you can put them in stressful situations enough to create habits that um, just like any uh, person develops habits over time, bad, bad habits and good habits over time, you can put them in too stressful a situation. Uh, so those playbooks that like I personally believe the playbooks are like um, I'm sure you have similar stories of parents forcing you to. Uh, do try to be good at something that you're not curious about or interested in, whether it's a sport or a, a instrument or a subject, uh, trying to squeeze them into a mold of something that they may view is the vision of themselves, uh, how they, their vision for their kids. So I just, I try to be, um, 
I don't have the right answers. And these are tough experiments to run because you don't know the outcome for a long yeah. time. But I do think um, really trying to be uh, curious about how parenting might be different than what we grew up on and not take the lessons of the past and think that they will apply for the uh, this this generation of kids. Yeah, that that's great advice. And it, it's so... You know, being a relatively new parent is so challenging to like try to figure out what what's the right move here, and um, yeah, being being mindful of not cutting and pasting what you think worked on you, especially yeah. is something. It's a good watch out, and um, I think that the other thing I'm trying to be much more mindful of is just like if I can't necessarily control the environment and all these like external inputs that my kids will have, especially as they get older, how can I help shape their operating system and like make sure that they can make the right or like the quote unquote best decision for themselves at a time. Yeah. And uh, I'm constantly like um, working on that. So like my kids will sometimes fight over the same toy, you know, the common uh, problem. And like the easy instinctual thing for me to do is take the toy and like be the referee. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to do a much more better job of getting them to talk it through and like just kind of asking the questions and hopefully um, averting any problems, but getting them to ask the questions, solve the problem. And like you guys deal, like work it out with yourself. Like I'm not always going to be there to be the referee and yeah. solve the problem. So. I really like that because I think that's something I've thought a lot about, not only in a personal context, but also even in like a business context. Like if you, um, an, an example being like, I've been thinking a lot about all the business books I've read, right? Mm -hmm. and, and those books are telling you what to do, do this, do that. Uh, but they're not telling you how to figure out the way to figure out what to do, right? And I think that's a little bit of what you're saying is, for our kids, it's uh, not like, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do that, and telling them the like very specific answer for the very specific situation in that very specific situation, give your brother that toy, you know? Yeah. But versus like how to, how to solve the problem, how to think about things or what approach you should take to think about things. I think that's probably more valuable um, to, for us as parents to mold our kids uh, to be able to think through that operating system, that decision tree, what things to consider before making a decision versus telling them what decision to make. You know, that that to me is just a little bit of a teach a man to fish type parable. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just telling them. And at one point in your life, you're not going to be there um, to do it. And I think what I see a lot with uh, uh, children of, um, you know, Asian immigrant parents where, um, the tiger mom, tiger dad concept of like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to play this instrument. Then you're going to go to this thing. You're going to go this. When, when that is taken away, uh, those uh, kids are not equipped to make their own decisions. And I see that a lot in um, some of the younger people that we hire is um, seeing that they are frozen uh, and unable to make their own decisions because their parents we're making all the decisions up until they graduated from college. And now they're out of college. They can't, they don't have the muscle to make decisions. They don't have the framework or operating system to say, here's how I'd make a decision. And they don't have the courage to do it because they never did it and made mistakes, tried different things, made mistakes and gained any confidence to make, mis to make decisions. And I think that's a, a cycle that I think is super important for people to break. That's not only 
relegated to Asian parents. It just happens to be a lot of Asian parents tend to be overbearing like that. And so um, I think that's a, uh, a cycle that I want to make sure I don't I break. I need to let my kids make their mistakes or let them uh, make poor decisions uh, so that they can uh, feel the pain and the consequences of those poor decisions so that they can learn from it and then be equipped to make those decisions. Mm. And on that topic of decision-making, we'd love to just kind of like uh, shift gears a little bit more towards your career. So um, after university, you worked um, in Morgan Stanley. Um, can you share a little bit more about your decision to start your career there and then uh, some of the subsequent moves that you made after? Yeah, I think um, even going back to college, if I thought about, you know, uh, the crescendo up to like joining a company, um, I would always try to take like the bottoms up approach versus a top down. Um, and by that, I mean, like in college, um, I I thought like I looked at the classes and say, what classes would interest me? And and then what does that compile to? And it tended it. it, it I ended up I went to Boston College for undergrad. I was uh, in the business school and the major concentration was called operations and technology management. And I think from that early time, I realized like that was interesting to me is to uh, operations and technology, like um, how things work, how the pieces come together was always interesting to me. Out of school, um, you know, having gone to school in the East Coast, but my entire family being on the West Coast, there, there it was, um, you know, leaving uh, I, I fell in college into the trap of like not quite knowing what to do and then uh, going with what's in front of me. And in that kind of, that is like on campus recruiting, um, you know, Morgan Stanley had a job, which effectively, you know, back then it was 2004, but uh, we would call it a product role now, a product manager role now. Uh, that's not what they called it because um, product wasn't really a concept uh, at that point uh, to those types of companies. And um, I took that role because it would help me get to New York and, um, you know, get me, uh, it, it was a structured way to get to New York. I had no idea what I was doing. But, you know, when I when I got there, I knew pretty immediately that wasn't going to be for me. You know, it's pretty like uh, immediate, like, um, you know, you have no idea what it's like to work. Um, and so as soon as I got there, I could tell like that wasn't quite the right fit. Um, it just, it wasn't, um, you know, I think I, the first couple of months, I really tried to convince myself that this is going to work and this is good. Uh, but when I really self-reflect on it, I was like, you know what, this isn't going to be it. It's like the company's too big, that it's moving too slow. Um, and the work was, was fine. Um, it just was like, it's not going to be the right environment for me. And, um, I, were you pretty confident in that, like, gut? feeling um despite you know great job out of college blue chip company working on wall street living in new york like from the outside i'm sure a lot of people thought well this, this is a dream job for some people so how yeah did you, how did you counteract that with just like intuitively how you were feeling i think that that has been a common theme in my career is um and i learned pretty early on that nobody could possibly give me advice because nobody understands all the situations growing up um, and uh, twists and turns along the way that they could really give me advice. Uh, and that's where I go back to like what I was saying earlier, it's hard to like give generic advice about what to do in any situation because there's so many factors involved. 
And I remember when I was thinking about that, everyone thought I was absolutely crazy, especially because the next gig I took was in a very different space. I ended up at a, uh, a digital marketing agency and I took a 50% pay cut to go there. Everyone thought that was absolutely crazy. But after that first experience, I realized like you just really can't listen to people. Um, you can't listen to the advice that people would have because they are they have their own baggage uh, that I don't know about. And they are projecting what they would do. And they just, you know, everyone's different. And there's just no way, um, you know, you could um, not everything is, you know, the same for uh, everything. There isn't, um, you know, kind of one path for every person. And so, like, I, I don't love it when I hear um, things in the media about, you know, people really pushing entrepreneurship. That's just not for everybody. That's okay. That's not like, it doesn't have to be for you or like startups are sexy. You should do that. No, that's like, I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. Like you should think is, are these the things, is this an environment that you enjoy? And it's totally fine to go uh, work at General Electric and have a 30 year career. That's like a totally fine career. It shouldn't be looked down upon or uh, society shouldn't incur, discourage someone from doing that or being a plumber or, you know, um, working a trade. Like, there's just nothing wrong with that if that is more for you. Um, and so that decision point, um, I think it was just really important. You know, my my parents are generally supportive and trusting of what I do. I'm sure they're talking shit behind the scenes saying, like, oh, what a mistake. But, you know, similarly, like they say, like, hey, go do what you got to do. And I'm sure I've made mistakes along the way or whatnot. But uh, what I've appreciated is like there's no second guessing because they're they're trying to trust me to do the things I know. And they know that I will work to continue to um, weave my way into what works, you know. But even and, that first move, leaving Morgan Stanley and taking a pay cut, did your parents have a reaction to that? Or no, did you just I mean, inform I, them they, after? I, I think they probably um, knew. Uh, I'm sure they never said it to me. I'm sure they were like a little like, uh, I don't know. I'm sure they were like, what is that kid doing? But um, I think they just knew um, that I was just going to find my way. Yeah. And um, that I was like uh, hardworking or clever enough to just at least not like starve, you know? So yeah. I think that is, um, uh, you know, and they never did that. They never put pressure on me. They never said anything mm -hmm. at that point and beyond. Um, and so I think that's something I really appreciate. There isn't that extra baggage that a lot of people carry. Uh, and it's something I'm trying to make sure I do for my kids. Like I don't, I purposely try not to have dreams for my kids about what they will be or not be. Um, just let them do what they can kind of explore without overly trying to influence it. Um, so yeah. after that, yeah, I just, I, those moves and I did a lot of zigzagging in my career in my twenties, which I, I think is um, something people should do in their twenties. You should zigzag between um, this and that, because how could you possibly know what you want to do in your twenties? You know, mm -hmm. uh, like you just don't know anything about the world. Um, yeah. So that was just like, you know, the beginning of a decade long of like kind of feeling my way through it basically. Yeah. And that's such great advice. And something you mentioned earlier is just like, you know, everybody has their own opinion. You just really have to listen to your own voice and the intuition of where you want to go. How do you, um, 
kind of shut out the noise because it's very easy to get caught up in trends and media is obviously a very influential example, you know, like maybe five years ago, you'd want to work at a FANG, right? You want to work at a big yeah. corporate tech company. Now you read the headlines, it's mainly FANGs being um, taken down by antitrust yeah. allegations. Yeah, And I, definitely the last few years working at a startup is much more, I think, culturally uh, trendy. Yeah. So um, do, do you have any advice or um, things that you did to make sure that you were able to kind of um, be plugged into the world, but not over influence in the world and really be listening to uh, what speaks most truest to you? Yeah, I think there's um, a lot of self-reflection that people aren't doing mm. and um, self-reflection in an intentional way. Um, people might be thinking that they're thinking about these things, but they're not sitting there and deliberately working through the problem, right? And there's some thing, questions you can ask yourself to try to figure out what is right for you, you know, what gives you energy, uh, how do you want to spend your day, right? Like that's another kind of, again, in the bottoms up approach, instead of saying like, you know, again, I want to be a doctor, um, say like, how would I want to spend my day, day to day? What like activities do I like doing? Um, if you don't map those types of things out, it's hard to figure out what that uh, equates to, right? Like it's hard to say like, what is the right role for you? And so, for example, like we talked about Google earlier, well, Google's a larger company. There's more things like new product approval committees and whatever. That's not how I want to spend my days. In fact, like those things really turn me off in terms of activities. And I, I also don't think I'm good at those things. Uh, so if I can understand what things are really valuable to me in active self-reflection and what things give me energy and how I want to spend my day, I can start guiding my way to like what's actually right for you versus what you think is right for you. And then in terms of drowning out the noise, I just don't even ask. I don't ask people for advice anymore uh, about like, hey, what do you think about me? It's just like there's it's irrelevant what other people say. And I think their thoughts and feelings about um, what you would do, the, about the only person that could tell me at this point is my wife because she's as close to like understanding all the uh, details of my life and how I am, what I'm good at, what I'm bad at um, to be. And then also just close enough to say, um, say things honestly, right? Because <laughs> like people yeah. are not going to be honest with, with you when you ask if it's controversial or it's something that they wouldn't do. Um, so she could say like, you know what, that's, you're not, you're not going to succeed at that, you know, or whatever, you yeah. know, so, yeah. but I just don't ask. And I yeah. just don't, um, uh, to be honest, like I've closed all my social media accounts except LinkedIn for professional reasons. So I can drown, I can out of sight, out of mind. It's not, I'm overly influenced by what I see, the, the best of people's, what they're putting out there and what I see. Uh, and it makes me too jealous. It makes me too, um, too much FOMO, too much whatever, all that that I, it, it clouds my decision-making. So I just chose to not do it, not to see it, not to solicit it. I'm just going to focus on like be developing a strong muscle for self-reflection and uh, being able to solve these problems on my own. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like after many years, you know, um, you know, 15 years working, like, okay, now I can uh, know how to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And I know like I've, 
I've also done that experimentation where going and doing a lot of different roles allowed me to get a lot of reps doing different things to know, oh, that's not it. Oh, that's no, I like this part of this, but I yeah. don't like this part. So I can compile after 15 years what that, um, what that really uh, should look like for me. And mm -hmm. so, you know, even getting my MBA, getting my MBA wasn't about getting that degree. Uh, it was about buying time, expensive way to buy time <laughs> to experiment. You know, yeah. career experimentation is not, uh, you, it's not like um, uh, frowned upon in an MBA setting two years. Uh, but if you darted around from company to company for three months at a time, everyone would say, you're crazy like this. I'm not hiring this guy. So, you know, the most valuable thing I did in my MBA was in the fall, spring, summer, fall, spr spring. So the two years, the two semesters of the two years and the summer, I did five different internships in five different sectors and areas and disciplines. Wow. So like a marketing internship, a BD mm. internship, um, you know, one in television or tried to do something in television, tried to do something in, uh, you know, advertising, you know, and then get using that to, I did a startup internship, you know, to calibrate and again, experiment to say like, Hey, this is what it's narrowing down. I know I don't want this. I know I don't want that. And, uh, focusing it and getting those data points through real world experimentation. And it cost me the tuition, which is expensive, but it's, uh, it's, it's a way to do it too, you know, without it seeming, um, like, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really tough to do and, um, it's tough to experiment and find these things out and combining that with self-reflection to be able to start having a really strong viewpoint on it. But I do feel like now I've got a really strong viewpoint on it enough to turn down really, um, great opportunities that I know I won't be successful at. And that's, I mean, the ability to know what you want to do with your life and our most precious resource time is priceless. So yeah. um, that combined with presumably the long scale of one's life and career means like, you know, for me, I, I felt like I did a lot of the same in the first 10 years of my, my life and career started as an accountant, went to consulting, yeah. working nonprofit in Africa, did my MBA, like the first 10 years was a blur, but the whole time I was like, similar to you trying to figure out, I like, certain aspects of what I was doing, but not the whole shebang where I could have conviction to spend a lot of time in it. And um, I do feel like that is, that's definitely been a valuable experience. So um, would love to, to also now talk about your time at Paxo. So you've been there, I believe longer than you have been anywhere else. Yeah, six and a half years. Yeah. Tells me <laughs> that this is kind of your unicorn uh, job for now, but yeah. uh, tell tell listeners a little bit more about Paxos as an organization, what problem it's solving, and then secondly, uh, the work that you do as a COO there. Yeah, sure. So Paxos, I joined in um, yeah 2014, so it's been six and a half years for me, and yeah, it's the longest stretch I've ever been at a company. And I think partly what is um, kept me here is during the growth, there's been different challenges. So it's almost been like three or four different jobs mm. in six and a half years. So it doesn't feel stale. Like I've been doing the same thing over and over. And that's what you get with a growing company. And you really Paxos is aiming to um, modernize the financial infrastructure that our whole world runs in the way our financial assets move. Um, you know, largely was built in the 60s and 70s and still running on mainframe technology. And so what we're really trying to do is take that leverage uh, new technologies like blockchain technologies, 
and enable uh, financial assets to move more uh, freely, be more accessible, uh, be more cost efficient, um, and uh, uh, have less risk um, with the advantages of blockchain technology. And so that's that's what we're doing. My role as the chief operating officer, um, I would describe my role as uh, a COO role as really trying to take the CEO and founder's vision and make that a reality by putting the right people and processes in place. And so um, the way I describe the CEO role often is like being a decathlete. And so like a decathlete, uh, you know, there's they, they do 10 events and they have to be pretty good at those 10 events uh, uh, to be, you know, the champion, right? So I, I have a similar type role where there's a lot of different groups um, that report up to me from uh, recruiting in HR, finance and accounting, compliance, legal, operations, security, um, and strategic initiatives. Uh, so there's a, a very diverse group of uh, departments that roll up under me. And my earlier career kind of zigzagging through, um, you know, different roles. So I've done a BD role. I was doing a BD role at Google. I was doing a, I've worked at a marketing agency. I've done uh, product management. I've done, um, you know, this and that. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's all served to help me uh, know what it's like to play those roles and then help oversee those roles and help create the interconnectedness between those departments to uh, build a successful company. That's great. And I, I guess, you know, a question about that, because um, I've definitely felt this throughout my career is this sense of being a generalist, but not necessarily a specialist. I, like, I love the decathlete um, analogy because that rings true as well. Um, do you ever have like feelings of uh, maybe not insecurity, but like not knowing enough and not being deep necessarily in one subject matter expert where that hinders you or has that actually not been a problem because you know if you hire the right people you trust them you know that they're going to get you up to speed where you need to yeah that's that's a good question i think from an early um in college i think i've always um been drawn to the coo role and so even in college and frankly even a little before that i've always thought about being a chief operating officer and that being just like the thing I wanted to do. Mm. And so as I was zigzagging through my career, um, you know, and and in some ways confirming that that is still true, because there was times I thought I could be this or that. And so tried it, knew it wasn't going to be for me. But in the back of my head, I always knew I wanted to be a CEO. You know, um, I after my MBA, I felt pretty confident that that's what I wanted to be and do. And so I tried to find, I wanted as much experience as a COO, that discipline of being a COO. Um, and to me, it's a discipline, just like sales or marketing might be a discipline, um, is I wanted to get as much experience doing the actual role as possible. And so where I had to start is, who's going to hire me with no experience doing that? Well, I have to go, go to the smallest company or uh, you know, the best company that would have me is like the smallest, most not well-known company. And, you know, I started as a chief of staff, which was basically like a COO. And then I worked my way to a COO role at a, um, a tech stars back startup called condition one. Uh, again, small company, 12 people, CEO. And I just, 
kept on working my way up. When I joined Paxos, I was small too. It was like eight people. We've grown to 150 people. Wow. And so my goal was always to play that role um, to whoever would have me in bigger and bigger stages. And so now at that point, if you count the chief staff role, I've been playing a CEO-like role for eight years or so. And so to me, my my uh, I don't view it as like, hey, I'm a generalist. I view it as like my skill set is a COO skill set mm. and being able to weave all that together. And um, the skill set there is a little bit like um, if you ever see those like Chinese plate spinners, you know, they're like in the circus, they're like spinning plates <laughs> yeah. and one is going down, they got to spin that one up. It's a little bit like that, trying to keep all the plates spinning in, in, in the, without anything breaking. Um, but I've spent eight years doing that role now. So I feel like that is the, the expertise that I've created. And I had a unique opportunity to do it because I focused on getting that specific uh, role as early um, in any scenario as possible in, in whatever company would have me and then trying to make my way up to bigger and bigger stages of that. Yeah, that's great. So I, I, you know, the way I think about my career is like, you know, there's a functional fit of like, okay, what do I want to do in the day-to-day -day aspect of it, whether it's a COO yeah. or like lead BD or partnerships. Um, and I feel like I have a pretty clear idea on that. And then the other bucket is industry. Like what yeah. type of space do I actually want to transform? How did um, Paxos and blockchain kind of get on your radar? And um, do you feel like this is an industry that you want to spend a long time of your career in? No. So I think those are, that's a good way of looking at it, but I've always tried to think about the industry as industry agnostic. So mm -hmm. my passion is about how companies function, yeah. not about what industry they function in. And, um, you know, I spent most of my career in ad tech, but then some now fintech. And to me, um, at least the way I try to view my career is like, it, I don't care what industry it is. Um, and in fact, the work I do to create the organization that is the company uh, shouldn't matter meaningfully between one industry for another. Now, there's some small differences. For example, we're regulated. So learning what a regulated uh, company and how that needs to run is a unique experience. And now I feel like I know. Uh, I'm sure there's aspects of a public company, running a public company that's different that I, I don't have experience in. But that's how I've always viewed it. It's like, I don't care what industry it is. Uh, and maybe I'll end up in some sort of healthcare thing next or some other, but I've always tried to position myself saying like, it doesn't matter what industry, uh, the skill set I have is creating the organization um, that will succeed uh, in any industry or mm. to that appropriate industry. So yeah, that's no. where like, I, it's not like, I, I wouldn't say like, I think it's interesting what we're doing. I think uh, the industry is interesting, but I'm not locked in saying like, hey, I need to develop some sort of, um, specialty knowledge in the fintech world. Right. And I, to be frank, that's refreshing to hear because, you know, what what we hear in popular culture or media is like, find your passion, solve a yeah. problem that you really want to spend the rest yeah. of your life on. And I, I just love hearing more practical um, advice like that because that, that, that rings true to me. I'm very open-minded and curious about many different yeah. industries and problems and obviously tides change as well. Um, so it's great advice to, you know, focus on the function, the type of job that you like to do day in, day out, what brings you energy. Um, and, and the industry isn't necessarily something you need to have a long-term commitment on. And that's why I think it's really dangerous um, because I've heard those things too, yeah. uh, whether it be in the media or people 
uh, gurus like saying these things or um, mentors or people saying these things. I think, you know, everybody, you have to think about what result you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to achieve uh, extraordinary results, you just can't do the same thing every, everybody else is doing. So to yeah. me, that advice is generic advice for the masses. But if you're trying to do something a little different or achieve a different result, you should not follow that advice. You should not even hear it because it's probably not right for you. And so, um, you know, that that's why I'm very careful not to even like let that enter my, uh, uh, not to uh, even read that type of stuff because yeah. I, I know I would be influenced by it and it's impossible not to be. So I try to be very careful where I'm hearing like uh, suggestions from. Yeah. And it, it seems like you've been quite disciplined with that and being very mindful of what, input you get into your psyche yeah. and environment. And um, in a strange way, I think that's been one of the silver linings of uh, the pandemic for me, which is I'm literally in my bubble, yeah. surrounded by the same people. Yeah. And other than obviously social media, like I, I feel like I've actually been able to have a little bit uh, of a clearer um, connection to what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. To your yeah. original point on like self-reflection, which has been good. Um, because you so. get into the rhythm of going into work, doing your thing, being surrounded by the people. And I think the thing that people don't do enough about is uh, check-in, a periodic check-in on how's this going? Am I just doing yeah. this? Has years just passed by without me even recognizing that years have passed by without checking in to see, hey, is this the thing I'm doing? I think the pandemic has helped do that because the routines are broken, mm -hmm. right? It's easy when you're just surrounded by the same people, you enjoy the people, to just keep on going. Um, but now that the, those routines are broken, it's uh, creating a dynamic where everyone's wondering like, hey, maybe the way, maybe I shouldn't keep on going this way, or maybe um, I haven't checked in with myself to see if this is still mm -hmm. right. And then you wake up, you're 50 years old and you've, you haven't like thought about it through your forties or thirties or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great segue to, you know, one of our last questions, which is what do you do to, um, take care of yourself, right? Whether it's psychologically, physically, spiritually, and especially as a father of, of two kids and, and uh, you know, overseeing a large, larger and growing company, what do you do for self-care? Um, I would say, I, I don't know if I'm the best at that, but what I do, um, what I try to do is like recognize, I, th I try to be focused on recognizing when I'm reaching uh, a tipping point. And that might just be frustrate uh, a tough day. Um, but the visual I have is like, there's a cup and the cup is filling with water and there's a point where the water will flow over or like boil over. Right. And so my, um, what I've tried over the last couple of years to be good about is just understanding what, at what level is the water in that cup? Is it close to boil, boiling over or is it like, Hey, do I have more? And if I can do that, you know, I'll, I take a page from the parenting book. I'll give myself a self timeout. You know, like when I see, oh, I'm reaching that point, I'll just like even excuse myself and say, I need to take a timeout. And what I find is like even just a five minute breather reduces that level significantly. Uh, but if you don't know where where uh, where that water level is, it's really hard to um, think about self-care or think about, um, hey, you need to remove yourself from this situation immediately to take to cool down. Um, and that stuff happens over time. You know, you have frustrated work day, then you've got kids and then you've got stressors. 
uh, 24-7. Uh, we're all at home. Kids are running in as you're trying to do some work and all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, coronavirus, political, dis, uh, you know, um, issues going on that, um, you know, create that stress. But uh, that self-reflection and understanding um, where you're at on a, on a minute to minute level, I think I found the most helpful uh, to keep um, keep things from boiling over. That's great. And it's, it's kind of like a real time monitoring, right? You just, yeah, you I, like I feel like after, yeah. after a while, I feel like uh, you can just know the physical or psychological sensations of like, oh, I, I need to take a walk or I need to this. Yeah. So, um, and the last question is what advice do you have for um, people who might be earlier in their career and trying to figure out what they want to do? And again, I know it's a blanket question, but uh, there are a lot of listeners who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their career. Uh, you've had an awesome experience. Yeah, I think it's, um, I would echo some of the stuff that I said earlier, which is stop thinking, uh, keep a few things in mind. One one advice I got that I really hold on to is it's not a one move game. So the next thing isn't the thing that's going to change your career, um, you know, one way or the other. It's the compilation of multiple moves that you make. So don't put so much pressure on the next move or having to figure it out. And also you can meander through your 20s. If you look at my LinkedIn, it's an absolute mess. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but if you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm wandering from one thing to another, but those are valuable years to figure it out. Um, it's hard to do that later in your life for a lot of reasons. You have more obligations, you don't have yeah. time, et cetera. Um, but the other advice I'd give is like, you really take that bottom bottoms up approach. Stop thinking, should I be a lawyer? Should I go into this role? Should I be at that company? Start start with a base level of like, how do I want to spend my day? You know, what are the things that give me energy? Um, hey, do you like to um, spend time with people? Do you enjoy um, analysis of this or whatever? You know, and then and then compile. The answer will reveal itself after you've done a lot of work at, at that layer. You should be able to show someone it's like, oh, actually, you know, lawyers spend their whole day writing briefs and doing this. You know, like you might it'll reveal itself once you start bottom up. But if you start top down and start trying to pick at careers or roles or jobs, maybe I should do BD or maybe I should do this. Like you're not going to be um, not going to achieve uh, the result. And I've done that in my career. Like, for example, BD has been something like I want to do. And, you know, at Google, I was uh uh, doing BD at uh, partnerships for the play ad group. And um, the mistake there is me saying like, I want to do BD versus like, you know what? I don't like doing the actual work, like the work of like sitting there. <laughs> yeah. out sheets. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, that's just not interesting to me. Uh, but for someone that's really interesting to, or uh, talking to 10 different partners and negotiating with 10 different partners like that, that is the actual work you're doing in that role. Um, and if you knew that was the actual work and that was something that really does give you energy, then that's the role for you. But if it's uh, if it's just talking about like this role versus that role, uh, most people don't actually know what the actual day to day is like in each role. So they're just guessing at it. Great advice, great advice. I, I wish I heard this advice years ago, but yeah, it, it totally resonates with, with me, which is start from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in and bottoms up instead of top down. I feel like, you know, there is a, 
whole mantra around, oh, you should have like a vision board and like career goals. With your <laughs> and it's just like, the world moves so fast. My, my preferences change so fast. Just get yeah. out there, like experiment, yeah. uh, learn and just like, you know, you'll figure it out. So yeah, it's um, like, yeah, like think about people should think about it as it, the way you think about agile product development. Yeah. You can't, you have a thesis, but you got to experiment. If you don't experiment, you're never going to validate your assumptions. And uh, most people feel too nervous to experiment. Uh, but if you look at like people that have had great careers that you want, you'll see everyone's got weird career stuff. No one took like the normal path yeah. to get to some very different result. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much. I know um, we're way past time, but thanks for um, your advice, your generosity and time, and also just being a great role model for uh, many folks out there who are just still trying to figure out what to do. So appreciate um, the time and all the advice that you shared today. Um, yeah. So people so want to, uh, people want to follow you. Where's the best place for them to find you on the internet? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the LinkedIn. only place. Okay. That, yeah. It's um, the only social media you're yeah, on. So. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah. That's the best place. And, you know, I appreciate you great. having me. Appreciate the work you're doing here. I think it's a great podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for joining. And also check out paxis.com if you're curious to, to learn more about the organization. Um, and congratulations on the recent uh, partnership with PayPal. Uh, final question. What's your prediction for Bitcoin price by the end of 2021? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Okay. Oh, not in, sorry. This is not this investment is, advice. Yeah, not financial. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Andrew. But I, I know I'll be wrong no matter what I say. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All okay. right. Thanks so, Thanks so much, Andrew. Take okay. care. Appreciate it. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.